Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. And today, in our fully vaccinated lives, we met for an actual walk, and now we are on my porch. Live and and in person. We are live and in person recording this podcast. And so, at different points in this podcast, you might hear sneezing. (laughs) (laughs) I saw that he was about to sneeze. We're not that cool. You might hear sneezing because pollen. You might hear my neighbor's chainsaw. (laughs) And as I think I've mentioned before, my youngest is in pandemic preschool, which is a home-based preschool with three families from my church. And these children are here and you might hear them because this is real life. This is real life. This is real life. (laughs) This is authentic. So... Hinton, what is astonishing you this week? Listen, I am astonished by Mr. Pat Robertson. Holy <laughs> cow. Listen, I... Okay, for those who are, for whatever reason, unfamiliar with Pat Robertson, he is a televangelist. He's been around a long time. I remember watching him when I was a child. Um, he is the host of the 700 Club, and... In many ways, I get him because uh, he comes out of the Pentecostal tradition, and there are many Pentecostal um, distinctives that I am all about, right? And, and tell the good folks at home, why is it called the 700 Club? I don't know. Why is oh, it called the 700 Club? Because it is based off of a teaching at one point Uh-oh. that they had read the book of Revelation oh, and no. figured out that only 700 people were going to go to heaven. So is this really? is if you want to be one is of the 700 right? for for reals, yes. Okay, because I knew the... Um, I'm sure they've backed away from Jehovah's it. Jehovah's Witnesses had that um, as well. Um, I'm sure they've backed away from it by now just for, like, marketing reach purposes, but that is the... Wow. Okay, well, I'm glad that there are more than 700 going. I mean, hopefully. says you, right? <laughs> anyway. That's right, I don't get to say. Back to Pat. <laughs> well, um, last week, I think it was Thursday or Friday, on his uh, 700 Club program, Pat made a statement about policing in America that just shocked everyone because, I mean, Pat is a known conservative and has said some things in the past that I believe are... um, Racist. Racist um, and just not compatible with the clear teachings of Scripture in Mm -hmm. terms of, of race and ethnicity. But he surprised me uh, last week when he uh, came out against uh, the shooting of Dante Wright and did a demonstration on set between Mm -hmm. a gun and a taser and said, how can we um, justify this? How can this continue to happen? How can we continue to shoot people? And his co-host suggested, well, they need more training. And then Pat went on to say, well, we also need to pay them more and we need to think in terms of better personnel because, in his words, um, we're not getting the best and the brightest. And even though I do I do think that there's some reforms to be made in terms of salary and personnel and training, they ignored the elephant in the room, which was race. Like, I mean, he was really upset that the um, um, 
lieutenant had been stopped and harassed by police in Virginia. And, and he kept saying, like, this is someone who has served our country. And he's right. This guy should not have been treated the way he was by the police. Uh, but what Robertson missed was that this is about racism. And so I celebrate, on the one hand, I celebrate his, um, his strong statement that this needs to stop. This uh, police violence needs to stop. And that um, he's clearly saying something is wrong with policing in America. And because he is a thought leader for a lot of people in the country, I think what he said was important and helpful. And I would um, ask him to think through how his understanding of Scripture sheds light on the racism that is operating in these situations as well. Yeah, I mean, I have, I have three things to say. So first of all, the other you thing that he said— You have a good three-point sermon. I have a okay. good three points right here. Um, he also said, he spoke to the Chauvin trial. I mean, he also said, basically, if you think that that was okay— you are lying to yourself, right. he mm -hmm. said, and I, I don't like this language. I don't like it when he applies it to people of color. I don't like it when he applies it to white people. I don't believe in vigilante justice. But he said, I want Chauvin under the jail, right? He Again, did say that. so that kind mm -hmm. of like um, belief in redemptive violence is, I think, anti scripture as well, even if it is, it doesn't matter who it's focused towards, right? Like, I don't want vengeance, I want justice. Um, but I do think it is remarkable, as the comedian W. Kamel Bell pointed out, like, who had Pat Robertson being woke on their 2021 bingo card, right? Like, it is remarkable when things are so egregious that Robertson, who is a Christian nationalist, like, that's his theology. And so the reason that he cannot identify racism as a factor, as a power and principality, is because he believes that America is the kingdom of God. He does. He thinks that America is the beginning of the kingdom of God that will then eventually spread across the globe. And so he can't perceive the fallenness of America because he thinks that America is the city on a hill and the kingdom of God. So his his theology is bad, but it is consistent. Right. Mm -hmm. But I do think um, that, you know, it is just um, interesting <laughs> that things are so bad that even a Christian nationalist like Pat Robertson has to say, like, no, that's across the line. And again, like, he can be mad about the lieutenant that was stopped because sort of the thinking is the way that so many Christian nationalists make um, peace with the prevalence of police violence and how racialized it is, is they say, this isn't a racial problem, this is a bad people problem. Mm -hmm. So the police kill people, they kill bad people, I mean, oh, well, right? So then when you see a lieutenant on camera being stopped and you say, like, well, I want to support the troops and I also want to say police violence isn't a problem and America is the city on the hill, so soldiers of America are soldiers of God, right? So you can just see that that consistency of his worldview. And it, it comes from thinking that America is the kingdom of God, which it is not. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of God. And it is global, not not any nation of mm. the world. So that I know I just seamlessly wove all three points. Yeah. Oh, that together. was pretty good. Because that <laughs> is why they pay me the big bucks. Um, That's so, yeah. how you roll. Yep. So what's astonishing you? Um, so I read an article the other day, and I mean, this is not the thought 
in having astonishing every day is that it's a spiritual discipline that gets us to look at our own lives and notice the movement of God in our lives and rejoice and not take it for granted. And I will just say, I'm not doing that this week. Um, because a, I read a really interesting article the other day by the, um, psychologist, Adam Grant, um, who, who does the work, he does a podcast called work it and he does workplace psychology. He did plan B anyway. I like his work. And he talked about this, um, mental health. This is not what I'm astonished by, by the way, I'm a preacher. So this is the intro. Um, (laughs) uh, he did an article talking about like languishing, which is like this Hmm. idea that psychologists say like, okay, there's like depression and then there's thriving. And that those are not like, those aren't binary. Mm -hmm. Like there's a space in between where you're not depressed, but you're not thriving. And psychologists call that languishing. Mm -hmm. And he was just saying like, at this point in the pandemic where we all are, not where we all are, but many of us are in that space called languishing. So we're not depressed, but we're also not thriving. Mm. We're just kind of in that space where, you know, um, finding meaning in daily life remains difficult and the adrenaline surge has worn off. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just like if astonishment is hard to come by right now, I don't think that we need to beat ourselves up for being self-absorbed or like unfocused on the Lord. We can just sort of say like, no, we're real human beings and we have been in this extraordinary disruption for 13 months and now and it's hard so i am languishing i am grateful to be languishing i am not depressed i also am not thriving and um that is okay because our lives have different seasons and i certainly you know have much to thank the lord for and i trust god with my future and also you know it's just it's just hard um so what I'm astonished by is an article I read, not my daily life, but an article I read last night when I was scrolling and watching TV, which is not a good mental health practice, but one I indulge in on the regular during this pandemic. And I came across this article in the New York Times and um, Colin and I were talking about it. Um, and the headline was like, yes, even the worst players in the NBA are better than you. And they were talking about this phenomenon of like people who play in the NBA and they don't, they're like the 15th man on the team. I mm-hmm. guess there are 15 men on a team. I don't know. I'm presuming. That's what I'm extrapolating from the article. I don't do sports. And um, then they retire. And then for the rest of their lives, like wherever they're anywhere, people will come up to them and be like, one-on-one, you and me, blah, blah, blah. Because wow. they see these NBA players who are not in the game very often. And they were talking about this one guy, like Scalabrini, I think his name is. And he played for like 11 seasons. And his average point score was like 3.1 points a game. And so people sit at home and look at him and they're like, this guy sucks. So then they happen to see him in the gym. Yeah. And after he's retired, they're like, oh, I'm going to take you on. And they had this great video and I guess it's all over sports center. So Colin was like, yeah, I've seen that before, but like these two young teenage boys challenged him to a game on one-on-one. And I think he's like mid thirties. He might even be 40. And he's, I read this, he's like six, nine and 250 pounds. And he's just kind of schlubby looking. I mean, he's super tall, but he's not like, you know, like Mm -hmm. NBA athletes are 
peak of physical fitness and he's not an active athlete anymore. And so these guys are like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to play you one on one. And he's like, well, what do you want to play for? And they're like, I'll bet my shoes. And so they go to play him and he just demolishes them. Right. It's like 11 to 1, 11 to 2. And they like have to walk away barefoot because and I just think like that whole phenomenon. And then they're interviewing all these other like quote minor NBA players and they're like yes this happens to us all the time like everywhere we go people walk up to us and like the people who recognize them are going to be the people who are pretty into basketball and walk up to them and are like I can beat you and they don't ever beat them and um, and they do it and people do it to even like Michael Jordan even like LeBron James like just people think like oh I can beat you. And I was just thinking at some point, this is going to be a sermon illustration, right? Because it's so interesting to me. Again, like I don't do sports, but the idea that people need to read an article or like bet their shoes to find out that they're not as good as an NBA player. Like, how do you not know that you're not as good as an NBA player? Like I'm no sports physiologist, but I think a one good way you would know that you're not as good as an NBA player is because you, in fact, are not in the NBA, right? So what what theological category would you put this just, in? How like, would you use this as mm, self-deception? Self-deception, right? I mean, like, okay. we just right. have this understanding of who we are yeah. that is so divorced from reality. And our delusions of grandeur lead us into encounters where we just, I mean, like, the benign outcome is you look like fools and you leave barefoot, right? But, like, the, you know, those delusions of grandeur can lead us into really painful situations where we think like, oh, whatever, I don't have to follow this tax law or I'm just going to um, have this one, whatever, the, the, this one date with, you know, like you just think like, oh, I can do this. Yeah. I and, and the reality is, you know, we just are not as we are. Lo- we are more loved than we know, but I think we are less if special means elite and superior to, we're not special. Like we're mm. loved, not special. And so I just like, but it just makes me laugh maybe because this is a delusion of grandeur that I'm absolutely not susceptible to, but it just makes me laugh <laughs> that there are people, men who will just walk up to an NBA player and be like, Oh, I can beat you. And I'm like, wow. Like how divorced from reality are you that you really think that like, you too are just a schlub at your local gym and you think you can beat that guy and don't even get me started about like all the women like there are they were the article was talking about how there's 500 men at a time who are in the nba and 150 women who are in the wnba so like if people think they can beat an nba player like they for real real Mm. real think they can beat a woman in the wnba and they just get crushed and A, I am here for it, but B, I just think like I'm astonished by that and wondering what it means because I know that it is not limited to obviously athleticism. And so I think there's just something about the human spirit that we just are not content to accept the limits of who we are and that, you know, I mean, I suppose if I wanted to get really, I mean, I might use it like if I were going to preach about the Garden of Eden, right? Like you know, Mm. you're given this clear directive by God. And then you're like, well, (laughs) I mean, what does God know? Right. I mean, sure. I can eat the, you know, I just think that that's that idea that something that is bad for other people, that's not bad for you or something that other people shouldn't do. Like you should do it. Right. So just anyway, I'm kind of astonished by that, but it just makes me laugh to think of these people going up to these 
retired athletes and being like. And I'm also thinking about that very thing in the reverse. Like, okay, so if I'm in, uh, if I'm in the NBA and I'm considered a bottom tier player, right. I could walk, awa- walk around thinking I'm just a bottom tier player mm-hmm. or I'm in the NBA. Correct. Right. And so uh, part of me is transferring that into what we do as preachers because there's a part of us, you know, that yep. say, oh, well, let me own it. It's part mm-hmm. of me that says, you know, I pastor a small church. I'm not mega church, big name pastor, but I've been called to do this work. I'm doing the work. I'm not trying to be better than anybody. No one is certainly going to challenge me while I'm sitting mm-hmm. in Starbucks saying I can preach better than you. But well. th- <laughs> I wouldn't because I'd lose. Right? No, you would not. You <laughs> saying would not. like that is the kind of ego I have. Yeah. No, I. Um, no, actually, it is really interesting to think about the reverse of that, about how sometimes we just walk around defining ourselves by what we're not. Because actually, he talks about it, the main guy whose name I don't know, Scalabrini or something, because um, he sort of has made a little bit of a career about it because they like mm. there was a radio station in Massachusetts that had a series of like afternoon challenges. They were called like Scalab Scalagens or something where like they would say, like, come out if you think you can beat this you know, schlubby guy who only averages 3.1 points a game. And so they would come out, you know, and he would cream them week after week. And people kept showing up to get creaming because they were so, but he talked about like, people don't realize how good I am, but like what they don't understand is um, I know how hard I have to work in order to be amazing in this league. And the other, the, the closing quote from the article, which was great, which we also should use is somebody some NBA player who is really good, whose name I don't know because I don't follow the NBA, looked at him and he was like, Scal, the thing about you is you look like you suck, but you don't. But you don't. <laughs> That's great. Like, and he's like, so I mean, he's just really embracing it. Like, I understand that I don't look like a player who should be in this space, but I'm in this space and I'm willing to do the work to stay in this space. And I know that just because I'm not as good as those guys does not mean that I'm not good listen, and that I don't have a role, right? Like listen, that would preach. Listen, yes, that is a word for anyone who suffers from the imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Anyone who is um, any kind of minority in a majority space and struggling with, you know, I don't belong here, I'm not good enough. That is a word for them. Well, and I also think it's a word for disciples of Jesus who are trying to like, pay attention to the Beatitudes, Mm. like pay attention to this idea that the way things are is real and also not ultimate, right? So, you know, it's not that we have the appearance of mourning. We are mourning. It's not that we have the appearance of weakness. We are weak. But I am content to be where I am in this current reality that is passing away because I know who I am in the kingdom of God, yeah. right? And so, like, I think he, like, whoever that guy is, Scalabrini, is, like, interesting because he's not out there, like, posing and posturing and be like, you better respect me. He's like, no, no, you don't respect me. And that's, that's okay that. mm-hmm. because I know how to leverage my seeming insignificance to, um, you know, whatever, further my further my goal. And I think that's the thing for for believers is we're not supposed to appear to be a thing. We're supposed to be a thing. We're supposed Mm. to be salt and light and not worry about whether 
people ascribe value to us in the cultural context. We are supposed to be excited and enthused and full of life and joy about who we are in the context of the kingdom of God and have right expectations for how people will perceive and interact with us not in the kingdom of God and also not despise people for not having what we have received purely by grace. So recognizing like, I don't deserve to be here and I'm not special because I'm here. Jesus is special mm. and I'm reveling in his specialness. So anyway, that's what's astonishing. Oh, that's me. good stuff. That's just a great article. Like I'm just really think I'll send it to you. Yeah, I was gonna say really that's that's meaty. You can you can uh, do, do several things with, with it. that. Yeah. Know, my my preacher brain it. wants to just really <laughs> massage that. I just think everyone loves it when I stand up and start talking about sports in a sermon. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway. Um I think I think I've said this before to you, maybe not in the podcast, but I think like I never tell jokes in sermons because I never. am not a comedian. Which I is never. so odd to me because you're really funny. Well, I'm not saying I I don't like I'm not afraid to be funny in a sermon, but I'm never trying to tell a joke, you know, like I want to be engaging. But like I just think and again, it's not my job to be anyone but myself. I personally would never choose to tell a joke in a sermon because I just I don't have time Let for that. Let your inner Joel out. But... I do think the biggest laugh that I've ever gotten in a sermon, and I was not trying to be funny, but I was talking about something at Cook's, and I was, I don't know what I was talking about, but I was saying, like, it was a Saturday afternoon, and it was raining, and there was nothing on TV but sports, and I blah, 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 and the whole congregation just cracks up, because, like, I think it was, like, a big, like, it might have been, like, March Madness or something, oh, right? Wow, so everyone wow, was just wow. like, what do you mean? Like, anyway, nothing on but sports, like, whatever. Anyway, what are you thinking about? Well, it's interesting um, that you mentioned that you were languishing, because um, that's that's kind of what I'm thinking about. Um, I got a note from my son's teacher recently, expressing her concern that he was having um, some challenges with his concentration um, in class, and um, I'm so grateful for her because it, it's just so obvious that she cares about her students in general and my child in particular and so just uh, again very grateful for Miss Bev and um, so we started looking into that because we've noticed some things at home but then um, I thought you know what I'm having some problems Correct. concentrating I'm having some problems focusing I am like regularly putting the wrong date on things, misspelling simple words, having trouble writing, um, putting thoughts together. I'm just tired. I'm not depressed. Right. But uh, just in a place where um, you hit a wall of fatigue and it's just, just hard to um, do what you normally do right. well. And if I'm at that place... I'm sure my child is. Your seven-year-old? He's Yes, yeah. he's seven. And um, we've had, um, you know, some situations in our neighborhood regarding uh, race and ethnicity. I've had to had, I've had to have a talk with him already at seven. I thought I would have more time. Um, I thought his, um, his time of innocence would last longer um but you know we've noticed some things in our neighborhood and so we've had to you know uh 
try to put some things on his level. Um, but I know that everything that's happening in the world and in the country and in our home uh, is affecting him as well. And so um, it's it's no surprise that um, every once in a while he'll have some some trouble um staying focused because uh, his father's in the same place well and tell me this and like or no, or don't tell me if you're not interesting but when you said you had to have a talk with him like are you like the talk like you have to have the first version of the talk with him or like kind of um i mean it was around you know um we live in a predominantly white neighborhood and uh, you know a situation where um a group boys he wanted to play with didn't want to play with him and clearly there was a rejection issue and so mm-hmm. we just had to talk about that and um uh, and that's hard because there there's just all kind of issues you don't want to confuse too much adult issues with right. you know kid issues um but um yeah so not not the talk the full talk right but um in the ballpark. I mean, I think that that is what is, I mean, now I can't, Adam, what's the name of the young man? The 13 year old boy who was shot by police two weeks ago in Chicago, in Chicago. His first name was Adam. And I, I mean, I, I think, you know, when you look at pictures of that child, He's so young. And just to recognize, again, um, to try and imagine what it must be like to to see that and have a child whose skin is not white and recognize, you know, just how quickly um, people will use deadly force against your child. And it's devastating to think about. And I was talking to a friend of mine um, who has biracial children and she was just saying like, I mean, it really broke my heart. And she was just saying like, when I saw that I had to go in another room and just cry for a while because he's just so young. And it's not like, it's not like she or I believe that anyone else who's being murdered by the police was old enough to deserve it. It's not that, but I think it's, I think it's just knowing like this is, this is, so close to what can happen so soon Mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. my child. And that um, is just a different level of. So this morning, um, my wife was going to get a COVID shot. So here's what I'm wrestling with this morning. So on the one hand, I'm thinking, because my wife is Asian, I'm thinking, do I need to go with her just for safety reasons? Yeah. And then I thought, well, if something goes down, and we're both killed, then my child is an orphan. So I should probably let her go alone, but I don't want her to go alone. I mean, it's it's that yeah. kind of psychological wrestling that you do every single day that's just exhausting. And I think as a white person, um, it's easy for white people to hear that and just be like, oh, that's catastrophizing or, oh, you know, like that's unfortunate, but it's just thoughts and not to really recognize that if that is constantly the mental space you have to navigate, it just, I mean, A, it's exhausting, B, it's formative, and C, it steals your joy, right? And so that, 
um, like I think I just wish people would understand that, you know, I think people feel like, well, it didn't happen to your kid. So why are you so upset about it? Right. Or like, well, your kid will never be in an alley tossing a gun away. So why do you feel like your kid's in danger? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's easy for you if you're white, not to feel like that is a threat to your kid. And you, and I think it's important just to at the very least to be curious about like, oh, is, you know, is this, is the mental space I'm in the same as my friend whose children are not white and, and why, you know? So anyway, I, yeah. And, but the other thing I think just listening to you talk is, I was funny, I was driving my middle schooler today to school and she was like mommy I think I might have a focus problem now this is a child every night who goes to sleep and writes on a piece of paper like her task list for the day like she's wow. like just I mean that's just how she's oriented that's right? impressive and we were just talking about like and she's talking about like in math class sometimes I want to talk to my friends instead of doing math and I was like when I don't think you have a focusing problem at all I think that you like a humans in general and particular adolescents are you're trying to figure out like delayed gratification and you're trying to figure out like when to tell yourself yes and when to tell yourself no. And that's hard work and that's what you're supposed to be doing right now. But then it just made me think like, I think many of us are having trouble with delayed gratification right now. Like we're having trouble telling ourselves no. And why is that? And is it because we're lazy and bad and whatever? I don't think so. I think it's because like so many of the ways that it used to be okay to tell ourselves yes, like You'd be like, oh, I'm going to go work out today because later I'm going to go meet my friends or I'm going to be with my coworkers all day mm -hmm. or whatever. Like so many things that you could say yes to have all of a sudden been taken away from you. And so it's so hard after all these months to do the kind of life giving, telling yourself no, because there are so few yeses right now. Sorry, that's screaming. Or that's a scream of happy children. If you hear it, <laughs> happy outdoor pandemic preschool screaming children. No need to be alarmed. Um, so yeah, I think it's, that's really interesting. And I also think with respect to our kids, um, there's a woman in our congregation who's brilliant, um, and, a um, acting professor at UNCC and an actor. And she did the children's sermon on Sunday and she was talking to the kids about, um, like they hear us talk about, or not us, but they hear the media talk about them as a lost generation and mm. like speculating, like, what is this COVID going to do mm. and blah, blah, blah. And they hear that. And I, I would not have realized that they internalize it as much, except that, again, one of my kids is like, they say we're a lost generation. And wow. like, you know, and I feel like we don't understand that our kids, like we're just kind of having a conversation and they're hearing that and wrestling with that label, label and they don't have the context of understanding how media works. Um, but anyway, she, Kaya, did this brilliant children's sermon, like talking about, well, after World War One. They said that was a lost generation and like let me tell you give you some names of like people who like reshaped the world because of their experience mm. not in spite of it and then was also just sharing all kinds of scripture with them about like you're not a lost generation you're a chosen generation wow. and you're so it's really interesting to have that reframing but i think like all of it to say what are right expectations for our kids and ourselves but especially our kids in this moment and is there a way to say like yeah, it's hard to focus right now. That doesn't mean you can't focus. It doesn't mean you have a disorder. It means this is where we are. And there are some things that you're not achieving in this season because of global pandemic. And there are other ways that you are learning like deeper and skills that will cause you to flourish later. Because, you know, like how can we, 
have hope and peace without having the expectation that we should all just still be able to be powering through yeah. in like chief adaptation, pivoting, innovative mode. <laughs> I mean, 12, 13 months later, that's not a reasonable expectation. On the other hand, this is not wasted time. And that's what I really want to, you know, I have people in my congregation who I love and I don't, I don't feel any type of way about this, but they'll sort of say like, I'm just really kind of checking out of worship. Like I want to, I just can't anymore. And on the one hand, like, oh, I get it. And on the other hand, I'm like, well, but I mean, this is the kind of worship we have right now. Mm -hmm. So we don't, we don't, I mean, we're planning to resume worship in June, but like, we don't know what's going to happen. Right. And so it's really important to have right expectations of ourselves, but also not write off this season as like lost or wasted time. So I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking about that a lot too, but especially to think about how kids are, you know, internalizing all of the trickle down stuff without having a lot of conversations like this to nuance it all out. It's yeah. pretty, it's pretty tough because I mean, of course they're having trouble focusing. Of course they are. My first response when I saw the email was, yes, I get it. <laughs> I, I get why he would have some challenges there. Mm -hmm. And, um, which doesn't mean ignoring it, but is there a way Correct. that we can address the problem without like letting any of us feel defined? I just think like renorming expectations for right now is really mm -hmm. important. So anyway, that's. So what are you thinking about? Well, I. Uh oh, this is going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm thinking a lot about um, this morning about Maxine Waters. Um, Auntie Maxine. Yes. She's just like, ugh. I, we, we have to be related. I just, every time I see her, I think that's my auntie Maxine. I just love her. Well, um, so right now the closing arguments for the Derek Chauvin trial have wrapped up mm -hmm. yesterday. And so the jury is now deliberating. And if you don't know, Derek Chauvin was, uh, is the name of the police officer who knelt with his knee on George Floyd's neck for nine and a half minutes until he died and we are having a trial to determine whether or not he is guilty of murder um and i have all sorts of thoughts about why <laughs> in america i mean i believe everyone needs a trial so i believe in that which is one of the reasons i think uh, george floyd should have had due process in a court and not died on the streets mm. Um, but we are, you know, the implications of this are huge, um, because we can't continue as a society, like this is not sustainable long-term. I mean, it's not just, it never was just, but I think a lot of white people really believe that. Nobody who matters is getting murdered by the police. That anybody who is not a criminal is fine in police custody. Um, and sort of, you know, this idea that like, well, there's a bad apple, but, you know, by and large, the police are doing their jobs and it just is what it is. It's a, you know, I think that a lot of white people are saying like, the potential death of some black people is a risk I'm willing to take mm -hmm, <laughs> because mm -hmm. 
I I am fine with the system as it currently is. It 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 um it suits me. It meets my needs. Um, yes, if we have to crucify a thousand Jews in order to keep the Roman peace, correct. So and, be it. I mean, again, like we as an American culture. I mean, and I would also say as a human culture, but particularly as an American culture, like we believe in redemptive violence. Like yeah. we believe yeah. that violence can end violence. We believe that killing some people who deserve it will terrorize other people and keep them under control like we just believe in it we believe in terrorism as long as it's not directed towards us mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. so there are just a lot of white people um and some people of color too who believe that there are just certain elements in elements quote not humans but elements in society who must be controlled by fear and threat and who cannot um cannot have the freedom of the amendments of our constitution. Like they do not deserve um, an amendment prohibiting unreasonable search and seizure. Um, they do not deserve the right to a speedy trial and due process, right? Like there are just some people who are so dangerous that we need to ha seize any pretext we have to um, search them to, and you know, we just need the right to be able to execute them on the street if we need to. And it's interesting that for some people, who who really understand freedom as a core value are really essentially supporting a police state, right? Like they're saying, I really want the police to be able to stop and kill mm -hmm. anyone that they want to at any time, because I'm confident that the people that the police stop and kill will be the people, you know, who I find it to be a threat. I'm gonna call yeah, and it's very easy <sighs> for us to see it in others. Like we could see it, um, you know, in Rome. We could see it. Um, I don't know. Um, in Palestine. In Palestine, in yes. Israel, Palestine. We can we can see it in uh, Russia. We can see it in China. We can see it in lots of different places where we think, okay, the the government is is violating human rights. Yes. But we but don't see it here. Right. The majority do yeah. not see it here. Yeah, the majority do not see it here. So, obviously, the implications of this trial are huge. I mean, just in and of themselves, they're huge. But I mean, what is at stake is, um, you know, is the American justice system. Like if Derek Chauvin is allowed to execute on camera an American citizen on the street and, and that's not murder, then even, even after, you know, the thin blue line was broken and police officials themselves were saying like, this was not procedure. This, you know, if that's allowed to stand, then what black people in America and white people know is that black lives do not matter. Like they just don't matter. Um, and people are going to be angry if that is the outcome and people are going to no longer have hope um, that any way of participating in American society is able to keep them safe. Right. And so I just think, um, I was saying on the walk this morning, like I remember talking to or listening to a lecture when I was able to go to Israel 15 years ago, there was someone, a Palestinian leader who was talking to us and was, and, you know, people were saying like, you know, can't like, why are all these young people drawn to violent acts? Like, don't they have faith in God? And he was saying like, yes, they have faith in God and they have so much hope in life after death. They don't have any hope in life before death, mm. which is why they are just, they don't feel like saving their lives is possible and they don't feel like it really matters when they die. 
um, and they feel like if I'm going to die, then I might as well be able to, you know, I might die, I might as well die actually fighting for my freedom as opposed to just being, you know, executed at any time for any pretext of a reason and no one will care. So I think, you know, there is, I think everyone recognizes just a huge danger of really uncontrollable violence after this trial. Um, I mean, and given what we saw on January 6th, you know, potentially either way, right? Um, and then you add into it the mix of Dante Wright being murdered by police in a traffic stop just two weeks ago in the same community, like it is a tinderbox. And on the one hand, I mean, it should be, right? I mean, like, is the, all, I feel like sometimes people are saying, and people are saying like everyone needs to be calm and everyone needs mm-hmm. to be respectful and everyone needs, I feel like what people are also sort of saying is, I mean, do we hope that we get to the point as a society that when we hear about the police murdering someone on the street, do, is what we're aiming for is the response to be like, oh, I mean, is that what we want? We want people not to be outraged. We want people just to accept that that is the way it is and the way it should be. Like, is that what we're hoping for? And I, and I feel like for a lot of white people, when they're saying things like, you know, if you wouldn't talk about racism, it wouldn't exist. And I'm like, yes, it wouldn't <laughs> exist for you. But um, anyway, so Maxine Waters, who is a congresswoman um, and serves in the U.S. House of Representatives, she was in, um, I don't, she was in the community where, um, bless you, sorry, there's a lot of pollen on my porch, which I cleaned. It's still, it's here. Um, so Maxine Waters was in the community where Dante Wright was killed and she was speaking at a rally and, and you, you can, and you should, you know, there are video clips of both what she said at the rally and what she said afterwards when she was answering questions and what she said is, um, I mean, the only thing that's even remotely controversial about what she said is she said, you know, after this verdict, if he's not found guilty, we need to be on the streets and we need to keep up the pressure and we need to be more confrontational. And so now there are all these people, including the judge in the Chauvin trial, who are saying, like, obviously his lawyers were like, this is a call for a mistrial. Like he, you know, he can't get a fair trial, which also I just want to pause and say, if your crime is so egregious that the whole world is watching and outraged, and then you say, I can't get a fair trial, and that's not my fault. Like, my crime was so egregious that there's no community who's, I mean, like, I'm sorry. If you want to not outrage the world with your crime, then maybe don't kneel on somebody's neck for nine and a half minutes. Like, again, do we want people not to be outraged by this? Like, is that the goal? Like, I'm sorry that it happened and the fact that people feel strongly about it i mean it's the alternative is unthinkable to me it would be like living in 1984 right Mm. like we would just have such a devalued sense of humanity that we would just accept that as not only okay but not even controversial but maxine waters was encouraging folks basically not to give up like if however the verdict comes out we need to continue to advocate for justice and to advocate for human rights and to advocate for 
full citizenship in the United States of America, and we need to be more confrontational. And people said, including the judge of the trial, that she was inciting violence and that she was inappropriate. And how dare she talk that way? And I just want to point out, it is crazy to me that people aren't saying to Chauvin. I mean, it's crazy to me that the only person who's saying like, oh, the person who's threatening democracy is Derek Chauvin. And the person who's saying that is Pat Robertson. But that you have people saying like, no, Chauvin's crime isn't a threat to democracy, but the way an elected official talks about it is, right? Particularly when we're coming out of the Trump era, when Trump is explicitly calling for violence and everyone says like free speech. And I just wanna point out that a confrontation is not violence, right? She did not say, I'm calling for violent confrontations. She said, I'm calling for more confrontations. And, And everyone will tell you that people who are are oppressing other people there's no scenario where you wake up one day and go oh i see let me give up my advantage over you i mean that's not how human nature works so a confrontation between justice and injustice is biblical it is it is confrontation is not sin now Mm -hmm. had she called for violent confrontation that would be another issue um, I think she people asked her if she believed in the curfew and she said, I don't know about a curfew. I believe in marching. I believe in talking. I believe in thinking about these things. Right. Like I just again, I feel like it is ridiculous that we're having a hysterical conversation about how we talk about what Derek Chauvin did instead of saying like, hey, this whole community is hugely at risk right now. Mm-hmm. And the primary person who is responsible for that is Derek Chauvin. And until white people in particular come to see that Derek Chauvin is not just a threat to black people, and he is, and that should be enough, but white people in particular have to see that Derek Chauvin is also a threat to white people because a house divided against itself can't stand. Like we can't continue to treat some Americans as, you know, hostile invaders, terrorist insurgents, just because they don't have white skin. And we like, and then just expect, continue to expect people to pay their taxes and show up and work minimum when not, I'm not saying, obviously, we cannot expect people to continue to show up and contribute and build a society that they cannot reliably expect to participate in. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking I I agree with Maxine Waters. What no matter how the verdict comes out, we need to continue to be more confrontational. I do not believe in violence. Period. End of story. Not at all. I'm not okay with it. Um and I also think there a confrontation has to um bring the truth to the surface and help people understand that it's in their own best interests to change reality. And I feel I feel like what a lot of white people want is for people to just to agree that George Floyd's life didn't really have any real value. Derek Chauvin didn't really do anything wrong. You know, it's not great, but it's not that big of a deal and let's just go back to normal. And I think that is wrong. Comfortable, mm-hmm. but wrong. And that is not a culture of life. And... I'm glad that Maxine Waters said, like, no, we have to keep confronting injustice. So. 
Yeah, I think it's easier to focus on Maxine Waters at this point um, because the trial is painful. The images are painful. The reality of racism is painful. And so we'd rather not see it. We'd rather not uh, deal with it. It's just easier to focus on Maxine Waters. And, um, you know, part of what we're dealing with in terms of policing in America is this idea um, that uh, whenever law enforcement encounters black people, that they are entitled to a heightened sense of danger. And and so um, um, force is necessary. And so when you have uh, a black woman um, saying confrontation, well, it it um, it feeds into that uh, twisted narrative that black people are dangerous. Right. And so it's easier to turn to that and focus on that in this moment. So when Maxine Waters says confrontation, people are like, that's a call for violence. Yes. But when a white politician calls explicitly for violence, people yes. say, oh, well, he didn't mean that. That was just yes. political speech and you're being ridiculous to take him seriously. Right. And, and Waters is in the tradition of king and that whole civil rights movement when when they said confrontation they meant um <coughs> things that would expose the evil like sitting at a lunch counter and uh, um you know having things poured on you and uh being called names and so um i i think in this moment we must think through strategy um for myself, I'm preparing my heart for um, uh, Chauvin to go free. Uh, that's just where I think uh, the narrative often um, goes here. And so I'm preparing for that, knowing that the struggle is and has always been long and hard. And... Um, I think it's the state of Maryland that recently repealed its, I think it's called the um, Law Enforcement Bill of Rights or something like that. I, I, there's, something, there, there's, there's something on the books in many states that give police departments a lot of shelter if not immunity from these kinds of things and uh, I think they were put on the books uh, I, I want to say in the 80s right like this yeah um, and uh, and they haven't been re-examined and uh, Maryland recently said you know what this is causing harm now I think that is to be celebrated because part of what we're dealing with is not simply the um, not not simply rogue racist officers, but a system that needs to be dismantled. And by a system needing to be dismantled, I do not mean that we're going to end policing, right? Even though that's you know, some people might hear that. I mean, dismantle um, a, a system that is targeting black and brown people as... Um, needing to be controlled force violent force right right well and i also think um you know the officer who killed dante wright um she was a trainer 
Yeah. I mean, so she yeah. was a 26 year veteran of the forest, head of the police union, and was in the process of mm-hmm. training officers when she intervened. And so I think this idea when people talk about needing to abolish the police, um, a, I think a lot of people, people who I respect and who I think are really trying to be on the earth are saying like, no, no, we need better language. Like I'm not against what you say, but I need you to say it in a way that makes me comfortable. And I think that as white people, we really need to look at why we think our comfort needs to be centered all the time, even when we're literally talking about the lives of other people's children, right? So do we believe that there's going to be a future wherein, you know, someone murders another person and we go, oh, well, have a nice day? Like, do we believe that there will never be a need for people to be protected from other folks who are dangerous? No. Like, I think that we will always need some folks (coughs) who bravely and honorably Um, risk their lives to serve and protect but I think an institution that was founded to catch quote runaway slaves right I mean (coughs) the the origins of institutions have a way of shaping culture Mm -hmm. that's beyond what we can understand but we don't even have to look back to what was happening in 1860s we can look at this person who murdered someone last week was training officers who are on the streets now and who will be on the streets. And so when we talk about we need to, you know, close this down and create something wholly new. And would that mean that anybody who was involved with the previous thing can't be involved with the new thing? Nope, not at all. Like people who want to serve and protect and are willing to help create and go through that could be a part of it. And people who say, no, if I don't have the right to shoot, stop and search and, you know, use deadly force against certain people whenever I want to. So if you're going to tell me I can't do that, I don't want to be a part of it. Cool. Then this probably isn't the right thing for you to do with your life. Yeah. I remember uh, being in high school in the eighties and hearing politicians talk about being tough on crime, tough on crime, (laughs) tough on crime. And mainly what they meant was we have got to get into these inner cities where black people are and just be really, really hard and violent and um, it is amazing to me now that you have the um, opioid opioid crisis in uh, a lot of white communities. Now, there's a lot of talk about treatment, and we need mm-hmm. to help people, and uh, which is great. And I I think that's true, but it wasn't true back then, and right. um, that is often how it goes. We we see the humanity of some and not the humanity of others. And that is in our policing. Well, and I think just the reality is, and I, I mean, I wish this weren't true, but I believe that it is. I just think that whether we want to or not, if you've grown up in America, when you think human without even being aware of it, you think white, Mm -hmm. right? Like white is the default human and anybody else is an adjective human. Right. So you're a person or you're a black person. Right. Like and and you think like, okay, well, that's not great. But does it really matter? I mean, it it really matters because we have, again, all of these sometimes conscious, but sometimes Mm -hmm. unconscious beliefs about the adjectives that we put in front of the word human. So we believe and we have internalized this idea that I mean, I don't even want to name all the stereotypes, but that have to do with like intelligence and work ethic and promiscuity and just value right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so even though you know 
statistics and science give no credence for this. That doesn't mean that those ideas, those lies, I mean, they're lies. And the devil is the father of lies. And those lies are powerful and they're formative. And I think that we just don't even realize where in our conscious minds we would say, I believe, and we would say and mean, I believe that all people are equal. And we don't even recognize how um, sometimes our unconscious bias is forming just the way we perceive reality. And that's hard enough. But when you're walking around with a deadly weapon on your hip, like, you know, it's deadly. Like I, I think about Chris Rock talking about like, um, Hey, you know, there are some professions where you can't have bad apples. Like United Airways doesn't say like, well, 99% (laughs) of our plane our pilots lie in the plane and we got a couple bad apples who fly them into mountains. Like we don't accept that. And the reality is in certain places you just can't, you can't accept that. And, And I also think, you know, the saying of a few bad apples is one bad apple will spoil the bunch, Mm. right? Mm. So, and the scriptural um, quote is, um, you know, out the kind of fruit that a tree produces reveals to you the nature of the tree, right? So if these institutions are consistently producing bad apples, then we need to look at the source of those bad apples, which is the tree, which is the institution itself. And I think, you know, there's just a lot of ways. And I think I understand, like, you can be resistant as a white person and be like, well, is everything about race? Like, everything can't be about race. And I want to say, like, there's a reason. And theologically, people call racism America's original sin, right? And I think it's true. And what do we know about the original sin? Like, the theological concept of original sin is this one choice that in ways we hate and can't control sort of infects and thwarts and shapes yeah. all the other choices. And that is just true for racism in America. And the way Calvin puts it is something like we are, every part of us is tainted. We're not as bad as we could be, right. but we need to realize that every part of us is tainted by that original sin. And acknowledging that original sin does not mean that you're acknowledging that everything is garbage Correct. or nobody's any good or nobody has any value. That's Correct. not it. Yeah. But you're just saying like this is how the fallenness of humanity is expressed in my context and like sin isn't cute to me. Like mm-hmm. I don't just go like, well, <laughs> it is what it is, especially when... You know, I don't accept that sin when it harms me. So the fact that I am indifferent to that sin when it harms my brother means I'm indifferent to Jesus and the Jesus ethic. And I just think that it's really difficult when I just want to use this one more example. Um, Another friend of mine was sending me um, an advertisement for a local charter school. And she was like, this really bothers me. And I don't know why. And so I was looking at it and they, they were saying like, come and apply to be in our charter school. This is a great program. We serve only like all of our children are low income. It's an entire, like all of our students are students of color and it is our job. We are working hard to break the curse of generational poverty for our students. And so why is that troubling? I'll tell you why it's troubling. Because the assumption then is 
gen these children are growing up in poverty because their parents and their parents' parents have been uneducated, have been lazy, mm -hmm. have not been hardworking. And so we need to bring in this charter school led by white people to intervene and save these children. And we are going to teach them to work hard and we are going to educate them. And then they will be able to break the curse of generational poverty that they received through their parents. Why? Yeah. <laughs> Is there a wealth gap in America? You can believe hmm. it's because white people are inherently more intelligent and work harder and have <laughs> what they earned. Or you can look at the history of laws in this country and realize that black people, uh, you know, white people built wealth when they were entitled to use the labor of black people without uh, compensating them. White people built wealth when they terrorized uh, black citizens during Reconstruction and stole their land and burned down their businesses and uh, lynched them for um, trying to participate in society and be things like a mail carrier. You can recognize that during Jim Crow, uh, cities distributed funds um, with without parity between white schools and black schools and realized that the reason people wanted integration of schools was not because they wanted their black children to be with superior white children. It was because they wanted their black children to get the same resources that white children did. Mm -hmm. And what did white people do in response? Sometimes they shut down the whole public school system so that they could send their kids to private schools that would not accept black people. You can recognize that some of the reasons that white people don't have generational poverty is because when they went off to serve in World War II, they came home and got the GI Bill and were able to go to college and black veterans did not get that bill. And so we're not able to access those services. You can recognize that white people were able to buy property in areas that were not redlined. And so they could get mortgages. And I mean, like the reason that black people are poorer than white people in this country is not because they're stupider or lazier. It's because the law were set up to favor white people and disfavor black people. And when you as a white person say, I'm going to start a charter school and I'm going to invite all the poor black kids to come and I'm going to break the curse of generational poverty, I'm all for breaking the curse of generational poverty. But the curse of generational poverty does not lie in the essence of black people. It lies in the unjust choices of white people. So, like, stop it. Like, but but that that's deep racialized thinking that is not based on a hatred, a conscious hatred for black people. Right. It's based on being unwilling to look at the truth of our white people's own sinfulness and our need to understand that we are good and we will look at reality and reconfigure it in a way that makes us good, even if we have to say benignly, like, oh, some of you who are not like me can be saved, but mostly you are where you are because of your own poor choices. And it has nothing to do with centuries of injustice that have been perpetrated against you. So I just, you know, it is the original sin in America. We have to be able to look at the wholeness of it and then think about whether, what do we want? Do we want to be prosperous at the expense of the lives of our brothers and sisters? Or do we want to say like, no, another way is possible and I want to be a part of building that way, even if it means I have to do the really deeply painful truth of looking at how I've been a part of a system mm -hmm. that has harmed and wounded my brothers and sisters. Yeah, and part of the hardship, uh, part of the hard work for us um, in all of that is 
there is the work of of dismantling the system um, but also the daily work of fighting for our own humanity um, especially that kind of internal psychological struggle um, as you know I'm <laughs> over the past couple of years I'm just in love with um, youtubers on the African continent and um, especially lately uh, I've been uh, tuning in to the channels of, of folks from uh, America and Britain um, folks of African descent who are either moving to the continent or just visiting for a season and it is amazing how many of the folks say that what was overwhelming to them that they did not anticipate was the feeling of being a person yeah. like oh I'm not a black woman I'm just a woman I'm yeah. not a black man I'm just a man and they're having to do um, in some cases it, it's it's a joyful shift of right. oh I can I can relax my mind <laughs> having to navigate. I can take off the invisible backpack yeah. that has been. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, that's yeah. just so heartbreaking. Like, I know we're going long, but I was listening this week to a video that a church in Georgia produced for its community um, about like the, I think the eight things you need to know if you're stopped by the police. Mm. And it was very well produced um, and it had people, I mean, it had young people at all different stages and parents, and they were just, you know, sharing, like, this is what you have to do. Like, you ha your hands have to be visible. You can't, but just all the stuff. But, like, the psychological pain of seeing a seven-year-old boy yeah. say, yeah. don't do anything that could make them see you as a threat, and his voice cracks. Or, yeah. like, a mom saying, just get home and then start to yeah. cry and say, I'm sorry. And you just recognize, yeah. like, I think it's so easy for white people to just be like, you should be respectful. Like, why can't you be respectful? And not to understand that it's not that anyone is saying people should be disrespectful to the police, like whatever, like that's not what it is. It is knowing that if you are, if you are perceived as disrespectful or honestly, if an officer wants to kill you, they can and just say, I feared for my life. And that mm -hmm. to know that that could happen to your child. Yeah is you know it's just an unbearable burden and to think that a church would have to make that video to for their own to keep their own like that's heartbreaking to me it is heartbreaking to me that we are living in a space where we're all just supposed to accept that that's the only way it can be like that's i i don't accept that we shouldn't accept that and white people right, would not yeah. accept doing that to yeah. their own children they well, no, wouldn't no but there's there's the dual work the dual work of Number one, you have to survive and come home at the end of the day. Yep. And the work of we've got to transform, we've got to change, we've got to dismantle this thing, this monster, this beast. And that is the dual work. And you can't do one without the other. Right. And I just think for white people who really believe, like, just give your kids the talk and then they'll follow these rules and then they'll be fine. And what you don't yeah. recognize is, like, maybe your kid won't die. 
but your kid will never be able to live a day without the psychological burden of going oh, like, that's exactly right. if I don't raise my hands yeah. in exactly the right yeah. way, someone might shoot me, right? Yeah. Like you can decide it doesn't matter, well, but it does. And it bleeds over into other things. Correct. It bleeds over into how you, how you see yourself in the classroom how you see yourself in the boardroom, how you see yourself when just walking down the street, how you, it, it is not limited to interaction with law enforcement. It does, it does, it has, um, well, it's trauma that just has a psychological right. effect in, in many other areas. And I think that like some white women can understand, like, how do you feel when you find yourself walking through a parking garage alone at night? Right yes. now, imagine if that's how yeah. you felt all the time. Yeah, that, like if that's you a felt good that level of yeah. threat and danger, yeah. not just the few random times yeah. that you found yourself, or whatever. Yeah. And you couldn't say like, "Oh, I'm going to walk with something." You couldn't plan yeah. your life in such a way to mitigate that danger if you just lived with that kind of existential threat all the time, no matter what. Yeah. And then you want people to just be like, "Just, just don't, you know, just don't rest." You know, you still have to carry that trauma yeah. all and the time. So some, some of us, because of that trauma, some of us respond in different ways. And I'm not faulting anyone for how they res respond to it. But some of us respond to that kind of trauma and threat by saying, I'm going to make you fear me even more. Correct. I'm going to dress, speak, have a vibe of be as imposing as I can be because I see the violence that is set against me. Others of us go the other end and say, I'm going to work to be invisible. I'm going to mm -hmm. try to make sure you don't see me in order to avoid the violence that has been set against me. And and those are both coping and strategies. And I just think like white America is really comfortable having a conversation about what's the right or wrong way to respond Correct. to the trauma and Correct. unwilling to have a conversation about like Correct. why is there trauma Correct. and is this trauma okay yes. and do we yes. just believe in it and and you know and when we say like let's talk about the trauma yeah. people say don't call me racist. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, you know right. how you feel about being called racist? Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. if yeah. you yeah. felt that kind of threat to your essential goodness all the time, plus it came with a risk of being killed? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, anyway, that's we've been talking for a long time. We've, we haven't even talked about, what are you preaching about this week? <laughs> preaching. Uh, what am I preaching this Sunday? Well, I have been looking at uh, the John 10 text where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And um, I don't really know what I'm going to do with it, what, what God wants me to do with it at this point. Um, I am, um, as I said to you on the walk, I'm struggling with that um, imagery uh, simply because uh, I'm a person who believes in um, a lot of very traditional Christian theology. And I believe that uh, following Jesus uh, leads you to um, um, radical places. Mm -hmm. um, but I know that I, I come to that as um, an African-American with certain experiences and perspectives. And there are many people that I know and love who hear that very same traditional theology who um, it, 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 
it takes them to a place of a precious almost, moments figurine. Yes, a precious moments figurine the, that the lobby of a Cracker Barrel <laughs> <laughs> that uh, allows them to accept the evil and injustice of society and maybe even their own sin. Uh, you know, last week I was looking at the text where. Um, um, it says that you know we we are we are children of God. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And the fact that um, I am a beloved child of God, if I rest and walk in my belovedness as a child of God, that is a very radical thing. But that can also be used to um, um, ignore, to turn a blind eye to injustice. Right to say. Basically, I'm a beloved child of God, so anything I do is beloved by yes, God. Instead yes. of being able to understand, like, you are a beloved child of God. I am a beloved child of God, often in spite of what we do, right? So that's the radical nature of grace. But I think a lot of, I, mean, I think this is the problem. Like, a lot of Christians can toe the line with what they think, what they've been taught traditional theology is, which they've been taught, like, you were a sinner, Jesus died for you, now you're not. Mm -hmm. Okay, first of all, that's a <laughs> fundamental misunderstanding of theology, right? I mean, like, that's not Christian, traditional Christian doctrine, right? Like, it's this idea that, like, sin is a factor for us from first breath to dying breath. Scripture is very clear it. about that, yep. right? So if somebody comes to you and says, like, hey, you've done this thing, and it's and it was deeply harmful, if we're Christians, our first response shouldn't be, how dare you sin against me by telling me, like, I can't sin. I'm a beloved child of God. Like, no, <laughs> you are a beloved child of God, which means that you center the truth of the revelation of Scripture, which means that, you know, Scripture has made it clear to you that sin is an option for you, for me, yeah. forever. We're not OK with it, but we should not be surprised and offended to discover that we are caught in a web of sin and sometimes what is in us shouldn't be in us. I mean, if St. Paul can say, I do the thing I want to do and I don't want to do and I don't do the thing I do want to do, like if the Apostle Paul can wrestle with sin, then to discover that you might wrestle with sin shouldn't be a shock. And Hello. sin isn't just like, I can't lose the weight I want to <laughs> lose or I can't make enough money that I want to make. Like, that's not sin, friends. Mm -hmm. Like, sin is, I have hatred in my heart towards my brother. And like, the scripture is so clear about the fact that people God loves sin for reals, right? Like Cain killed Abel and God didn't say, I'm going to kill you now. God put the mark of protection on him, right? Why? Because God didn't care that he killed Abel. No, no, God cared. <laughs> there were consequences, but it didn't stop him from being God's beloved. Like Jacob was chosen, not because he was good, in spite of the fact that he was bad. Like, like the Hebrew Bible is so exceptional because the Hebrew people chose to remember yes. not just their moments of triumph, but their moments of deep failure because their story was a God-oriented story, not a self-oriented story. And so they didn't choose to say that because we're the chosen people, that means everything we do is right. They chose to remember that we are the chosen people. And so we did things that violated the covenant and those had consequences, but they didn't, that the consequence was that wasn't that we lost our chosenness, right? Like we don't get it. Like we have yeah. internalized cheap grace to such a degree that like when people come and tell us that we're caught up in sin we we can't hear it like that's that's ridiculous um i don't even know why i got started on that tyrant i'm sorry <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> well the point is um so I'm, I'm wrestling with this very traditional imagery of jesus as the shepherd and for me um it is 
kingdom affirming. It is um, devil diminishing that I know and rest and trust in the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, who guides me um, even in the valley of the shadow of death or racism, who promises to prepare a table before me in the presence of, of, of the clan or any enemy, right? That, that is a very radical thing. Um, and as I look at the history of black people, especially the black church, it, it seems that we do have this kind of dual, man, we love Jesus and traditional theology. We're all about it. And at the same time, there's this radical edge and I'm struggling with communicating that in a multi-ethnic context because sometimes some so sometimes I feel like I do it well and other times striking that balance is very very tricky and uh, this week I'm wrestling with 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 that imagery well I think there's like two challenges one is like the revelation of scripture is beautiful and multifaceted and frankly beyond us and so it's always going to be we're reaching for what's beyond our grasp, right? Like we're say, standing up every week and being like, let me, like, let me explain God to you. Like, let me, yeah. you know, explain the revelation <laughs> of God. Like, that's just, yeah. like, that's just foolishness, right? And so there's, there's that tension, I think. And then there's also just the tension of when you say like, I struggle to do that well. I mean, to, mm. like, what is well, right? Is yeah. well yeah. defined by, okay, everyone in the congregation feels a certain way about me? Is well, everyone in the congregation, you know, gets to this theological point? Is well, you know, the congregation grows? Or is well, I I was a catalyst for the Holy Spirit mm. to do some reforming and reshaping and coming alive in Christ in the people who hear me. And like, that's just a, a huge spectrum, but if it's the latter, then that might truly be happening very well while everything else is all over the place. Right. And so I think that's tricky. Like if people are leaving your church over your preaching, you can't assume that that's because you're such a great preacher, (laughs) but you also can't (laughs) assume that it's because you're a terrible one. Right. Like people are going to show up and tell lies and tickle people's ears. And that's, Mm. you know, so I just think it's really, it's really tricky. It's a, we're trying to do a thing that can't be done. So that kind of sucks. And B we're trying to do a thing that if we do it well, sometimes we'll bring great joy and comfort and sometimes sometimes we will hurt and not harm correct 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 you know and like jeremiah was very faithful and he ended up in the bottom of the dry cistern right like people i mean there's a reason all the prophets got killed so i'm not calling you a prophet but i'm not not calling you a prophet right and i just (laughs) think like but there are too many things um that we don't realize that like it is a double-edged sword and so we can do it well and and like not you know and know it wasn't sufficient and also know that we're nobody's throwing us a party for it also we could just suck so there's just there's that as well there's that option yeah so what are you preaching um so our spiritual practice always in a series always always faithful to your series well (laughs) for better or worse uh we have the last one this week and um we're doing it on um forming 
intentional community? Like how do we form community? And I, I think I'm going to preach on Corinthians 12. So just the body metaphor, which I think is really important for any church, but I mean, a, I think every church should be multi-ethnic. Um, I just say it. Although I, I think it's very different if, if there's a minority, majority minority congregation. Like I understand why in a hostile America, people might need a space where they can be people and whatever. I'm just saying multi-ethnic is how it'll be in the kingdom of God. So going for that, I think is faithful. And I think if you're trying to be a healthy and holy multi-ethnic church, like that teaching about the body of Christ is really helpful to recognize that we are not the same and we're not supposed to be the same. And that for, for since the beginning, God's people have been recognizing, like, if we belong to each other, then why are you different than me? Like, why can I do things you can't do and you can do things I can't do? And the things I do seem important and the things you do seem stupid and unnecessary. Right. And so Paul has to come in and be like, Hey, (laughs) right. And, you know, do this teaching about the things that seem shameful, get special honor. And I mean, like just all like just a radical reorientation of what community is which I think um is really helpful and we were talking on the walk and this is why uh faithful are the wounds of a friend because I'm like I'm going right like I'm just I'm on it at the end and Yolanda's like but what's the practice (laughs) (laughs) so so just because I'm doing a sermon on spiritual practices, you want the sermon to have like a practice in details, it? Like, details. oh, yeah. Uh-huh. So, um, but I think that the practice is um, intentionally cultivating relationships with people in the body of Christ who are not the same as you, right? Um, and I think we talked maybe calling it solidarity, but I think, I mean, I think that relationship is is the, I mean, just the, everything is relationship, right? So I think the place Mm -hmm. you start is relationship. You don't, you don't aim for solidarity because that's just an abstract Mm -hmm. term. Mm -hmm. But, but what you can say is I need to be in relationship with people who look like God, but not like me. (laughs) And if I can't be, I need to wrestle with why. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, again, like, I'm not saying I want you to go out and abolish the police. I am saying like, do you have any friends who are not the same race as you? Right? Like that is something that's completely in your control. And if not, why not? And in the body of Christ, what does it look like? Like we can all be in the same sanctuary and that does not mean we are in relationship. So what does that look like? And I think building that on top of like, I can give the theological framework and the teaching, but then linking it back to last week's sermons about boundaries and saying like, Hey, just cause you're ready to do this doesn't mean that you've built up the trust equity mm. that you can walk up to someone and be like, Hey, tell me what it's like to be Asian right now. Like, you know, again, <laughs> I'm a whole human being and I'm not here as your like, you know, vehicle to wokeness. Right. Yeah. Like, so just being in relationship though, that's like messy and it's vulnerable and it's not like I'm going to do this thing and then I get my card and I move on It's saying like, no, if we're in relationship, that's an unending commitment to being in a healthy way, like entwined in one another's lives. And so I think that's it with less words. That's what I'm going to go for. (laughs) Um, So to anyone who's still listening, thank you so much. I love it when you say that. (laughs) I mean, I just want to make it clear that we are really grateful. Um, So thank you for listening. And I want to encourage you to check out 
what the Lord is doing at Derrida Presbyterian Church, where Yolando serves. So you should go to their website, which is deridapres.org. And you should go to the Sermon Podcast, which is the Derrida Church Podcast on Membean. Podbean. Podbean. Just kidding. Podbean. Why can I not get that straight? And you should join Derrida Church for worship on their YouTube channel, the Derrida Church, Charlotte, North Carolina, D-E-R-I-T-A on YouTube. Um, it, it goes up at 6 a.m. or whenever he finishes it from the night before That's because right. he's a beast. Um and if you want to find out more what God is doing at The Grove, our website is thegrovecharlotte.org. And you can listen to previous vintage sermons. Oh, wow. <laughs> vintage. Our back catalog at our, um, at our Grove Church podcast, which is on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can worship with us on Facebook. Um, we premiere video, but we um, are gathered as a community and lots of holy banter and um, call outs and talkbacks in the in the chat. So that's 10 a.m. on Facebook. And we'd love to worship with you. So thank you for listening to us. And we will talk to you next week.